Welcome to Myth the Ladies, the podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Zoe. And today is January 4th, and it's our first episode of the new year. And we all want 2021 to be a better year than 2020. So we at Myth the Ladies wanted to bring you some luck and good fortune for the new year by talking about a wide array of luck, fortune, and fate goddesses. Lizzie, take it away. So our first goddess is Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of wealth, fortune, power, luxury, beauty, fertility, and auspiciousness. She holds the promise of material fulfillment and contentment. She's also called Sri Lakshmi. The word Sri is spoken before addressing a god, a teacher, a holy man, or any revered individual. The word evokes, amongst other things, grace, affluence, abundance, auspiciousness, and authority. Awesome. Scholars are of the view that initially the words Shri and Lakshmi referred to anything that was auspicious or brought good luck or bestowed riches and power. Later, the two words were personified into two goddesses who eventually merged. Thus, Shri Lakshmi, or just Lakshmi, came into being. That's super cool. Yeah. So she's the wife of the god Vishnu, and they are often worshipped together as Lakshmi Narayana. Just as Vishnu has many avatars when he descends to Earth, Lakshmi can also take on different forms, including Sita from the Ramayana. Ah, yeah. So in terms of etymology, Lakshmi in Sanskrit is derived from the root word laksh and laksha, meaning to perceive, observe, know, understand, and goal, aim, objective, respectively. These roots give Lakshmi the symbolism to know and understand your goal. Lakshmi is often depicted as having four arms and hands. She wears red clothes with a golden lining and is standing on a lotus. She has golden coins and lotuses in her hands, and two or four elephants stand next to her. The four arms represent the four directions in space and therefore represent Lakshmi's omnipotence. The red color symbolizes activity, the gold lining on her clothing represents prosperity, so the idea here is that Lakshmi is always busy distributing wealth and prosperity to her devotees. Gotcha. The two or four elephants standing beside her symbolize fame associated with worldly wealth, so this represents the idea that a true devotee of Lakshmi should not earn wealth merely to acquire fame and satisfy their own material desires, but also to share such happiness with others. That's super cool. Yeah. So, she is not only worshipped by Hindus, but also by Buddhists and Jains. Though Buddhism and Jainism turned away from Vedic rituals and Brahmanical dogmas about 2,500 years ago, they didn't abandon Lakshmi. In the Buddhist Jataka tales, which is our body of literature concerning the previous births of Gautama Buddha in both human and animal form, there are stories of people who request Lakshmi to drive away the goddess of misfortune, Kalakani, and in addition to that, Kubera, the god of wealth and treasurer of gods who is often associated with Lakshmi, appears on a lot of Buddhist shrines. Also, symbols of wealth and royal power commonly associated with Lakshmi are favorable to both Buddhists and Jains. These include the pa, a pile of gems, a throne, a fly whisk, a conch, a fish, a parasol, nagas, which are mythical serpent beings that protect the Buddha, and yakshas, who are nature spirits, and a footstool, a horse, an elephant, a cow, and a wish-fulfilling tree. Wow. Yes. 
So Lakshmi is also worshipped every year on Diwali, the festival of lights, that spiritually signifies the victory of light over darkness, knowledge over ignorance, good over evil, and hope over despair, and which happens in October or November of every year. Mm-hmm. There are also a number of related goddesses. In China, she is worshipped as Lahakshimi. In Japan, um, the Japanese goddess of fortune and prosperity, Kishi Joten, which means auspicious heavens, corresponds to Lakshmi, having her roots in Hinduism. In Bali, she is known as Devi Sri, and she's regarded as an incarnation or one of her manifestations. And I think Lashmi is very cool, and I think we have enough about her to go off of for a future episode. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, definitely. Yes. It sounds like she's super important. Like, she's um, the wife of Vishnu, who's like the main god of Hinduism, as far as I'm aware. And she's present in so many other nearby cultures, as well as in like yes India so it sounds like she's really important yeah so there we have her she's associated with material things and prosperity and she's a very important goddess in Hinduism mm-hmm. yeah so our next goddess is Tifi uh, who's the Greek guardian deity who determined the fortune of cities so basically, she was the, in charge of the prosperity, luck, and destiny of cities. Her heritage is a little debated. Um, it's said in some places that she's the daughter of Aphrodite and either Zeus or Hermes, or some others say that she's an Oceanid and the daughter of Tethys. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's interesting. She's also often associated with Nemesis, who is the goddess of revenge, and I think that makes sense. I feel like luck and revenge. Two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. especially in ancient Greece. True. Yeah. Greek historian Polybios said that if there was a natural disaster that had no cause, such as a flood, drought, frost, or even political upheaval, it could be blamed on the will of Tihi. During the Hellenistic period, cities often worshipped Taihai, which was a specific iconic version of Tihi to the city. So basically, like a lot of different cities had a specific icon manifestation of Tihi, that they would worship and you know bring offerings to in order to ensure the prosperity of that city. And this practice actually continued into the Roman Empire and including into the Christian period of the Roman Empire. So she was quite like very present in that those cultures and her influence was pretty widespread. Interesting. Yeah. And so there were very many magnificent temples built to her, including in Alexandria in Egypt. And she was depicted on many coins during the Hellenistic era which I think makes sense to put the goddess of luck on your coins. Absolutely. And she served as the driving plot force behind many Hellenistic romances. So basically, like, the unpredictable fortune would drive, like, the plots of romances and cause things to happen. So she was actually pretty well respected. Um, She was even so well respected that a lot of philosophers in ancient Greece respected her. She was reviled by poets as a, quote, fickle harlot, which I think is really just <laughs> poets being poets and, you know, being angsty and stuff. But like, anyways. exactly. Um, <laughs> the worship of her often spiked during times of chaos and uncertainty. And to talk more about that, I have a quote from Greek historian Stylianos Spiridesis, who said, in the turbulent years of the epigony of Alexander, an awareness of the instability of human affairs led people to believe that Tihi, the blind mistress of fortune, governed mankind with an inconstancy which explained the vicissitudes of the time. So, like, I think basically, you know, when things were really chaotic, they were like, hey, give me some good luck. You know, like, mm-hmm. I need it, you know. And basically, I think that um, it also shows that, you know, in ancient Greece, it was a very chaotic time. There were a lot of wars, a lot of political upheaval, some diseases. 
they basically were like, luck is really crazy. She's all over the place. And we have no idea what's going to happen ever. So it's good to get her favor if we can. Yeah. So she's depicted wearing a mural crown, which is a crown that represents cities. And she carries a cornucopia, a ship's rudder, and a wheel of fortune. And sometimes she actually is standing on the wheel of fortune, which represents her mastery of it. And then, so we go on to Fortuna which is the Roman form of Tihi. Her name likely comes from Vortumna, which means she who revolves the year. And she's generally considered Jupiter's daughter. She's celebrated on June 11th and June 24th, which is the Feast of Flores Fortuna. And she's often depicted as veiled and blindfolded, like Lady Justice, but without the scale. So basically, super random. There's no balance to luck. Okay. Yeah. Her identity and actions were associated with virtus, or strength of character. So basically, those with ill virtues were destined for ill fortune in the eyes of people in the Roman Empire. There were many cults to her throughout the Roman Empire, including an oracle at the Temple of Fortuna Primagina in Praeneste, and that was basically a small boy who picked up fortunes written on oak rods. So huh. That was how she determined your fortune. And all the cults were dedicated to different aspects of fortune. So, for example, there was Fortuna Dubia, which is doubtful fortune, Fortuna Brevis, fickle fortune, and Fortuna Mala, which is bad fortune. And, like, on the Wikipedia page, there's a whole list. There's, like, 30 different, like, aspects that of her that were known to have been worshipped. So, basically, there's, like, good harvest fortune and, like, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, people, like, came to her for all sorts of different types of luck. And she was associated with many other gods, including the Egyptian Isis, Bonus Aventus, who is a male god of agriculture, and Mater Matuta, who is an indigenous Latin goddess. And the worship and interest in Fortuna continued throughout the Middle Ages, particularly through depictions of cornucopias and the Wheel of Fortune. So much so that St. Augustine talked about how people shouldn't worship her because she's not as great as God, basically. Wow, okay. She was influential in multiple pieces of medieval literature, including Dante's Inferno. But in these depictions, she was not depicted as autonomous in power, but as a servant of God. So basically, they were Christianizing her. I see. And finally, she is even mentioned in Machiavelli's The Prince, where he reminded everyone that fortune is a woman, and therefore she favors a strong, ambitious hand and the more aggressive and bold young man than a timid elder. All right. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> so also from ancient Greece, we have the Fates, also known as Moirai, who were the ancient Greek goddesses of fate who personified the inescapable destiny of man. So they assigned to every person their fate or share in the scheme of things, and their name means parts, shares, or allotted portions. Mm-hmm. There are three of them. Their names are Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos. So Clotho is the spinner who spun the thread of life. Lachesis is the apportioner of lots who measured it. And Atropos, also known as Isa, is the inflexible one who cut it short. Mm-hmm. So the fates were the distributors of good and bad fortune to men and to nations. They assigned to each man at birth his allotted portion of life. When the portion expired, they cut the thread of life. As such, they were sometimes described as goddesses of death, attendant upon the throne of Hades. Mm-hmm. The Moirai were described as ugly old women who were severe, inflexible, and stern. Mm-hmm. Clotho carries a spindle or a roll, Lachesis, a staff with which she points to the horoscope on a globe, an atropos, a scroll, a wax tablet, a sundial, a pair of scales, or a cutting instrument. At other times, the three were shown with staffs or scepters, or sometimes even crowns. At the birth of each man, they appeared spinning, measuring, and cutting the thread of life. The Romans' name for the goddesses was Parque, and the names of the individuals were Nona, Takuma, and Morta. Okay. It's interesting, because that sounds like Atropos uh, was a lot more associated with death in ancient Rome. Yes, especially by the name. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. From my very limited knowledge of Latin. <laughs> I feel like we can, we can assume that morta means death, I feel like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like we can't assume that. So, like Tichy, um, their parentage is disputed. According to Hesiod's Theogony, their parents were Zeus and Themis, the titaness of divine law and order. Mm-hmm. According to Cicero, their parents were Erebus, the god of darkness, and Nyx, goddess of the night. Mm-hmm. And according to Lycophron, um, their parents are Kronos and Nyx. Or according to Plato's Republic, their mother was Ananki, the primordial goddess of necessity, compulsion, and inevitability. So fate, according to the ancient Greeks, was not, as some have thought, inflexible, to which the gods themselves must bow. But on the contrary, Zeus, as the father of gods and men, can, if he chooses, save those even who are already on the point of death. Okay. The fates presided over the cyclical descent of Persephone into the underworld and her springtime return. Her passing heralded the revolution of the seasons and symbolized the birth and death of all life on Earth. So you can see the association there. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They were also present at the birth of gods to declare their divine privileges and functions, mm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. They also made declarations on the assignment of countries and nations to the gods. They also had a hand in founding the Olympic Games. So the Olympic Games were founded by Hercules, and it says that in that birthday hour, the Moirai stood by this new established rite to consecrate it. Okay, yeah, that's cool. So they were also sometimes regarded as the sources of prophecies. However, this role was more often assigned to Apollo. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. So, murder was a crime performed in defiance of the decrees of fate. The Aranes acting as a... Yeah, and so, if basically, if you killed someone, the Aranes would act as agents of the Moirai, and they would kill you. Okay, well, that's really interesting. In addition to that... So, no one's fated to be murdered. Yeah, I would say that's a good analysis. And in addition to that, suicide is also described as a breach of fate by at least one Roman writer. Okay. Also, they were the attributed inventors of certain letters of the alphabet. So, yes, presumably these had certain mystical values connected with prophecy and fate. So my source told me that these letters are A, B, H, T, I, and U. However, these are Latin letters, so my guess is that they correspond to alpha, vita, eta, tau, iota, and upsilon. Okay. But a Greek person could correct me, but that's what I think. And that's the fates. Yeah. Do you know why they invented letters just for fun? I guess it's just, like, they sort of imbued the letters with, like, fortune and, like, you know? Mm -hmm. That they had sort of mystical values associated with them. Yeah. I guess so, yeah. That's really interesting. It's interesting that they invented some letters, but not others. Yeah. And it's interesting that, like, the fates are the ones who make the letters, and so, like, there's something divine or, like, really powerful about writing. True. Like, the act of writing something down. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super interesting when it comes to, like, the role of, like, histories and, like, epics in ancient Greece. Yeah, and sort of their destinies. Yeah, for sure. And, like, the power that those hold. And I mm-hmm. think that's... So that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So very similar to the fates, going way far north, we have the Norns. So the Norns are Norse beings that have dominion over the destiny of gods and humans. According to Snorri Sturluson, author of the Prose Edda, there are three main Norns. Their names are Urthur, Merlandi, and Skuld. These three Norns use water from the well of fate 
and sand from around the well to pour over Yggdrasil, the world tree, in the base of the Nordic mythological world. This ensures that the branches and roots of the tree will not rot and the world will not fall apart, basically. Um, they are believed to be Jotun maidens who appeared in order to end the golden age of the gods, but also appeared for the good of mankind. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And I think that makes sense because unlike a lot of different mythologies, in Norse mythology, gods are not immortal. They can die and they do die. Um, and the reason why they last for so long is because they eat apples that basically restore their youth. And so it makes sense that they would also be subject to the Norns in that way. And that would end their you know, golden age um, because they can die. And so the Norns, since the Norns are in charge of determining fate, would have that power over them. So can the Norns die? Unclear. <laughs> interesting yeah so in Dallaire's book of Norse myths a classic it is a classic yes influential yes <laughs> it says that the Norns generally weave gray thread for someone's life but sometimes if it's an artist or a poet the thread is red and sometimes if it's a king or a hero the thread is pure gold so I thought that was nice yeah some quick etymology a few sources for the name Norn the first theory is that it comes from the word meaning to twine which represents the literal thread of faith that they weave um, a historian theorist scholar uh, named Beck Peterson has a theory that it comes from the Swedish word Norna or Nierna which means to secretly communicate and that refers to the shadowy role that the Norns play in many stories which I thought was fun that is cool so for the names of the Norns the name Urter is a cognate with the old English word weird, which means fate. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that they mean the same thing. Both Uther and Merthandi come from the Old Norse verb Mertha, which means to become. It's believed that Uther is derived from the past tense, which means that which became or happened, while Merthandi is present tense and means that which is happening. Interesting. Then at the end, Skuld comes from the Old Norse verb Skulu, which means need, ought to be, or shall be. And therefore, skulds means that which shall become needs to occur. So it's believed that these meanings imply some association with past, present, or future. But also this is debated because some people believe that these words don't actually have a super like chronological association in Old Norse. I think it's interesting. I can see that skuld because it sounds like um, skula in Norwegian. Yeah, which means... I definitely saw that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's like shall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, um, these are the three main Norns, but there's actually many other Norns that are present in um, literature and beliefs. So there's more than three? Yeah, there's more than three. Okay. So they may appear at someone's birth in order to decide their future or death, and they can be either malevolent or benevolent, you know, causing good or bad events in people's lives. They're referred to in many forms of Old Norse literature, and they're often used interchangeably with other female goddesses, such as Valkyries and Jotuns. And also other spirits such as Haminya and Fjölgja, which are like uh, various types of protector spirit. And so, for example, um, particularly Skuld is actually referred to as a Valkyrie in the Prose Edda. So interesting. They're basically kind of used interchangeably. Some examples of this in Skaldic poetry, they're referred to both as bringers of death, but also in a legalistic role. Poet, Skaldic poets often use legalistic language to reference the judgment of the Norns. So they bring death, but it's sort of like, um, you know, they're like the judges in like a courtroom declaring death. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Then in Eddic poetry, including the poetic Eddas, um, they often cite characters blaming the Norns for the bad fortune, and it's generally discussing the cruelty of the Norns. Mm -hmm. Then they're also mentioned in the prose Edda, 
Um, as I said before, the prose Edda generally sets up their role, who they are and what they do in like the Norse mythological world, which is mainly what the prose Edda is in general. They also show up a lot in the sagas. Um, basically, they show up as harbingers of fate. So a primary example that I know of um, is in Gisla saga, which is a saga of a man named Gisli Sursun, who is outlawed after killing his brother-in-law. Uh, during his 13 years of living as an outlaw, he is haunted by dreams of women who pour blood and gore on him and tell him how many years he has left to live. Wow. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all the Norn like appearances in the saga are really gnarly. Um, so just a warning. Um, yeah, so it's believed that those are like the Norns, manifestations of the Norns. And then in Njal's saga, near the end of the saga, there's an episode recounting the Battle of Clontarf, which is a battle between an Irish king, King Brian, and the invading Viking rulers. And this battle is very important because it's seen as the end of the Great Viking Age. The Irish beat the Vikings, and that sort of stops or slows down Viking conquest in Ireland. And so during the battle, um, a man in Scotland has a vision of a group of women weaving a bloody womb with guts as the strings, a skull as a shuttle, and all sorts of really nasty stuff. It's gross. Anyway, and so that symbolizes the end of, like, the fate of the Vikings in the battle and probably also the death of paganism because the Irish are Christian and the Vikings are pagans and, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, some people believe that the Norns are inspired by ancient Germanic matres and matrones, whose depictions on votive objects inspired much later depictions of Germanic goddesses. And also, um, so it's believed by some scholars, but there's no actual evidence for there just being three main Norns. And that was just a result of later Greek and Roman influence, like the fates. Interesting. So that's, in general, it's thought maybe they're just a bunch of, like, spirit, like, female goddesses, spirits that go out and, like, are um, around humans, and there's not, like, three main ladies. Okay. So, yeah. Those are the Norns. Yeah, they reminded me a little bit of my next lady, which are the Aura, mm -hmm. who are Northern Albanian goddesses of fate. So along with the Aura, there are also the Zana, and then in southern Albania, the Fatia, Mirai, and Vitore. Mm -hmm. So it was believed that there were as many Aura as there were humans, for each person has his own Aura, who was given to him at birth as a sort of guardian angel. The nature of each Aura is suited to the individual to whom she belongs, even her appearance matches that person's character. Within Albanian folklore, the role of the Aura tends to differ. The aura are often described as good mythological figures that offer their protection and help, but in several tales are depicted as negative and dangerous creatures. Within Albania, people believed the aura would protect them, while other people believed that they were dangerous creatures with evil purposes. Okay. They can be compared to the ancient Greek fates, the Nordic Norns, and the Lithuanian Lima. So these are goddesses of birth, not only because they attend the birth of each human being and foretell their future, but also because they organize the appearance of all humankind. These cosmological and anthropological activities are analogous and parallel, and their divine status can no longer be identified with the image of the good fairy of fairytale fame, according to a source that I have. Mm -hmm. They appear among the ranks of the earliest generation of gods, who, as in Scandinavian and Greek mythology, are contemporaries of the race of giants. Okay. So, the inhabitants of the Duke of Genie Mountain distinguish three categories of fates. So, Ebarda, the white one, who brings good luck and wishes humans well. Everda, the yellow one, who brings bad luck and casts evil spells. And Ezeza, the black one, who deals out death. Okay. 
Okay. So when determining the baby's destiny, the many aura congregate in the night to distribute their favors. The principal aura, who is beautiful with eyes that shine like precious stones, presides from atop a big rock over the meeting of the 300 aura. Their faces change according to the degree of happiness they allot to the new baby. If they reprimand someone, it means that they have already cut the thread of the person's happiness or life. Today, such a person is still called or prem or by the aura cut. Oh. Also, they can appear as serpents. Oh! So Albert Doja, who is a source that I'm getting a lot of this from, said, Beliefs about protecting serpents, whether it is Aura, Vittore, or the house snake, are found throughout the Albanian culture zone. Many Albanians believe that one must not disturb a snake, even when one finds it in the baby's cradle, because it is the Aura that belongs to the house and the baby. So basically, aura aren't inherently good or bad, but can arouse ambivalent feelings. They can be either loved or hated, or be desired or feared. Awesome. Yes. Do you know what this reminds me of? What? Sleeping Beauty. Interesting. How so? Um, so a little bit earlier when you were talking about how when a baby's born, all the aura assemble and determine the fate and cast their favors. Ah. And that reminds me of the beginning of Sleeping Beauty when all the the fairies are there and they're like, we're going to cast our favors and give her like these good things. And then, of course, the evil fairy comes in and is like, nope, she's going to sleep for hundreds of years. Uh, yeah, no, I totally get that. I see where you're where your head is. And so I thought, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I really like like the sort of fairyish aspect of these a lot. I think that's really fun. Yeah, for sure. So the aura really remind me of these Slavic goddesses of fate that I found some information on. And so the first one is named Dolia, and she represents fate bestowed on man at birth and assigned to a specific person. She is described as a plainly dressed woman who can shapeshift. Interesting. Yeah. So when she's in her positive aspect, she is Dolia, but when she's in her negative aspect, she is Nidolia. Huh. So Dolia protects the man she's assigned to, preserving his health and wealth, offspring and property. I'm assuming she does the same for a woman, but, you know, she's what the source is. Anyway. However, Nidolia neglects her assignments and thinks only of herself, and basically bad things happen to her assignment. So does it, does everyone have like both the positive and negative one? So I think you have a dolia assigned to you, and it's basically depends on who's assigned to you whether or not it's negative or positive. Oh, okay. So basically, it's saying like either you get good stuff or you get bad stuff. Regardless, it's impossible to get rid of dolia. The fate is inevitable, basically. Wow. Okay. Then another uh, lady I learned some about is Srecha who is basically the South Slavic form of Dolia. So Dolia is found more in the East and Srecha is found more in the South. Um, and she's more representative of fortune or luck rather than fate. And so a man could get rid of Srecha, but not Dolia. Okay. Srecha in her positive aspect is depicted as a beautiful woman spinning a golden thread. However, in her negative aspect, she's known as Nezrecha and she's depicted as an old woman with bloodshot eyes. And so basically it's the same thing. In her positive aspect, she brings good luck and fortune to the person she's assigned to, but in her negative aspect, she brings bad luck. But you can get rid of the negative spirits of Nezrecha, unlike Nidolia, who's stuck with you no matter what. Mm. And I thought they were really interesting. Yes, it sounds very similar to the aura. Mm -hmm. So to close off our episode, we have our last lady who is known as Benzaiten, or Benten. 
So in Japanese mythology, there are seven gods of fortune, also known as the Fukujin, believed to grant good luck. These deities have their origins in ancient gods of fortune from Hinduism, Taoism, and Buddhism, and only one of these Fukujin, Ebisu, actually has a Japanese origin. Oh. Yeah. So the Fukujin were originally worshipped separately, but in about 1420, they started to be worshipped as a group. Six out of seven of these gods are male, but one is female, and she is known as Benzaiten. Okay. Or Benten. Mm. Her origin is found in Hinduism, from the goddess Saraswati, who is a Hindu goddess of knowledge, music, art, speech, wisdom, and learning. Mm-hmm. So her worship came to Japan during the 6th through the 8th century via the Chinese translation of the Sutra of Golden Light, which is a Buddhist text that has a section devoted to Saraswati. Awesome. Because the Sutra of Golden Light promised protection of the state, in Japan, she became a protector deity, at first of the state and then of people. Later, she became one of the seven gods of fortune. Okay. So she sounds a little like Kiki. Oh, yeah. In that she's associated more with like the state than rather specific people's fortune, like protection mm-hmm. of the cities. Yeah, for sure. She's also a water goddess associated with fertility and language and poetry, music, and dance. She often appears with a snake in her headdress, and dragons and snakes are her messengers and avatars, and she herself can appear as a white snake. Oh, super cool. Yeah, and similar to the aura, Shinto priests and practitioners will often try to avoid harming a snake if they come across one in daily life. In fact, encountering a live snake is considered an extremely lucky omen, while encountering a dead one is considered a sign of misfortunes to come. Okay. So then we have that association with snakes and fortune, which is super interesting. That is super interesting because snakes are not considered lucky in a lot of places. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so today, Benzaiten is usually depicted as a heavenly woman crowned with a white serpent, playing the biwa, which is a Japanese lute-like instrument to represent her mastery of the arts. Awesome. Her primary attributes are compassion and amiability, and as such, jealous women often pray to her in order to ease their envy. That's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> so her shrines are often located near bodies of water, and many of them are still active today. So Benzaiten's main ritual, the annual Lotus Festival, still takes place at her temple in Shikubushima in midsummer and dates back to Japan's medieval period when Shinto priests would pray to her for rain and a bountiful harvest. Benzaiten is also frequently worshipped on New Year's Eve because, according to legend, the seven gods of fortune embark together on their Tarkubune, which is a treasure ship, and they bring happiness to everyone. Awesome. Yeah. So on New Year's, Japanese tradition tells children to put under their pillow a picture of the seven gods of fortune aboard their treasure ship, or a picture of the mythological Baku, who was the eater of nightmares. And then a lucky dream means luck for the whole year, but only if the dreamer does not tell anyone about their dream. If so, the dream will lose its power. Okay. So that's Benzaiten. That's so nice. I really like that. Yeah, isn't that nice? And it's yeah. a nice, nice little New Year tradition. Yeah, absolutely. So what I thought was really interesting listening to all these goddesses is when goddesses of luck were viewed as positive versus negative versus ambivalent exactly so like for example benzaiten seems to be like a really positive yeah person. she really like, does i thought you know like i you know i felt really warm listening to you talk about her 
Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, um, you know, other goddesses were, like, worshipped and, like, you know, venerated a lot. Like, for example, Lakshmi seems to be quite well worshipped and venerated. Also, Tihi and Fortuno had a lot of cults and temples dedicated to them. However, mm-hmm. on the other hand, um, it seemed like the norms and the fates often really got a bad rap. Exactly, yeah. And it's interesting how there were, like, groups of three among those ones, and they yeah. were quite similar. Yeah. Like, assigning your fate at birth, cutting the thread, like, yeah. this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's interesting, the possibility of the Norns being influenced by the fates in that way. Yeah. And so one of the things I looked at, so I mentioned in the, um, when I was talking about the Norns, that it's possible they were influenced by the ancient Germanic Matres and Matrones. I looked a little into them. They're basically like older goddesses that were always depicted in threes. Interesting. And I'm, so I'm wondering if that's like where the influence comes from, or at least like, you know, possibly for the Norns, where the threes are. Um, I don't yeah. know about like for the aura or the or the fates, but like. Well, for the aura, they um, they came in groups of three, sort of. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. yeah, and I don't know if that was the Germanic influence as much. But. It could be because they were also related to the Norns and to the fates. Yeah, for sure. And then um, it seems like there is a lot of question about th- how you can, if you can escape fate or not, like you know the inevitability of fate. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very interesting. For sure. What you said about like in ancient Greece about how gods can change fate was very cool. And like how um, if you murder someone, that's like changing fate. That's going against what the fates want. Like it's not set and then in you'll stone. be punished. Yeah, like you'll be punished for it, but it's still like changing it. You still have that power. Yeah, and, like in ancient Greece and in like ancient Scandinavia, where like the Viking Age and everything, it seems like quite a grim landscape. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense that their fate goddesses would be sort of more negative. Yeah, and however, though, it seemed like the um, ancient Norse had a different view of luck as a lot of the rest of Europe, which I read a bit about in the article you sent me, which is the Norse concept of luck by Bettina Sebjerg Sommer. And basically it said that in a lot of Western Europe, as I said, the ideas of luck generally view it as fickle or unpredictable. So like the depiction of Fortuna as blindfolded but without scales, like she doesn't see what she's doing and she's just going all over the place. There's no balance. However, um, in Norse myths, luck is often considered something inherent in a man or his lineage. It's possessed by people in different measures. And if you have less luck than someone, you're powerless against them. And you can't really find luck or earn luck, but you can lose your luck. Interesting. And so since luck serves as an inherent quality, it's a judgment of character. And it's generally seen to you have to have luck in order to be seen as an ideal figure which I believe is sort of similar in a way to the Roman view of luck, which is that those with greater morals have greater luck. But there's actually some examples where that's challenged, where if you don't have luck, you can still be seen as an ideal figure. And that's seen in the outlaw sagas, which are the sagas of Gisli Sursun, who I talked about earlier, and also Grettir Asmundarsson. Um, and since they're outlaws, obviously they have bad luck because they're outlaws and that's like the worst state basically it means you're completely rejected from society anyone can and should kill you (laughs) if they have a chance and they will not get any punishment for it in fact they'll probably get rewarded for it wow and so even though these people are outlaws they're shown to have the qualities of heroes that are often lacking in the society that they're outlawed from and so for example Gisli is referred to as the bravest of men but it also says he lacked in luck and he also has one of the greatest last stands of all time and when it comes to Vikings and Icelandic sagas, how you die is really important because, like, if you think about it, how you die determines where you end up. Like, 
Yeah. You end up in Valhalla versus Hell. And he mm-hmm. dies fighting. He's going to Valhalla. And then, therefore, also Grettir is cursed by a demon named Glom. And basically, that sort of leads to his downfall, his outlaw, and his he spends like 35 years being outlawed, which is crazy. And he's still admired and considered a very brave man, despite all his negative characteristics. Mm-hmm. Even so, their successes, which are in quotes, because like, hard to imagine their lives as successes, they're kind of miserable. are considered anomalies or wonders by the saga writers who note that their lack of luck is unusual. So it's really unusual that these men were so unlucky and yet still really had such extraordinary lives and were such extraordinary great fighters, individualists, like people who were able to survive really well for such a long time. Mm -hmm. And so then, of course, those sagas also have the question of whether or not fate is flexible or not. So if the question is, if you're born with bad luck, then are you fated to have all these things happen to you or is it like a personal failing or is it not a personal failing specifically like if you do bad things and end up getting outlawed is that a personal failing or is it not a personal failing because you just had bad luck you were just born with it and so you just blame it on yeah yeah, you know it's just all outside of your control what were you going to do you know like Mm -hmm. so my question for you is do you believe in fate um well i want to say no (laughs) But then that's not very on theme for the episode. What about you? Um, I'm, I should have thought of my answer before I asked this. Oops. <laughs> um, I, so I think sometimes I like see like some things really happen, feel like some things happen for a reason, but I don't think that there's one specific destiny that I'm working towards. Mm-hmm. And then also like these ideas of like fixed destiny really remind me of like the Calvinist views of predestination, which are like you're born, either you're born as like God's chosen elect or you're not. And there's nothing you can do about it. It reminded me of like if, you know, that philosophical debate about if free will is determined or or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like if, you know, if we have fate, do we have free will? So true. So anyways, happy new year, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good 2021 with these fortune goddesses. Yeah. And all these great big questions that we asked you. And thanks you for listening. Um, If you enjoyed, please like, subscribe and tell your friends about it. Leave a review and we'll be here next week with another episode. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Myth the Ladies podcast is produced, researched, and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MythoLadies and visit us on our website at MythoLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.